Blog Talk Radio. Cusick Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hate them. Patrolling and trying to get me right. Cusick Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Reed Brightman, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today, but remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com, and let your friends know about the show. People can listen to our podcast on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Here on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze the hottest civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today we're going to analyze five really interesting news stories, and then after that we're going to do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Now, the first news story of the week is about a White Plains wrongful death trial of Marine veteran Kenneth Chamberlain. Uh, apparently, they chose the jury, and after whittling it down from 40, uh, a pool of 45 candidates, they got a jury that is all white, um, or I think maybe one black person, and the family is kind of crying foul. Um, Robert, tell us what's going on. Well, anyway, this relates to the story of Kenneth Chamberlain, a 69-year-old, as you said, Marine veteran, African-American, and a former corrections officer. You know, it's a very strange uh, circumstance that brought the police and uh, Mr. Chamberlain together that fateful day back in November of 2011 that ended in his death. Apparently, he had a medic, metal, medic alert bracelet that went off, and when the doctors attempted to reach him and couldn't, they called the police to do a kind of uh, a checkup call, they call it. And when the police went to his door, he became agitated. He wouldn't let them in, and they spent 90 minutes banging on the door, trying to conjole him and to try to convince him to let them in so they could check supposedly on his well-being. Um, what happens next is a subject of considerable dispute. Apparently there's some, uh, some body cameras and some audio recordings that show that the uh, officers became increasingly abusive, used a racial epithet, and eventually broke the door down, and they were then confronted by Mr. Chamberlain, they say, with a knife. Uh, they used beanbags on him, and uh, they say he lunged at, them at with the, uh, lunged at them with the knife, which resulted in his death when one of the officers uh, fire, fired shots that killed him. It's a tragedy. Why was he acting erratic? Well, they say that he was having a psychotic episode, although it doesn't look like he had much history of mental illness. Now, the interesting thing here is that, as in many of these cases, the officers who were involved were never indicted. So the family, in an attempt to to get what they considered to be justice, filed a civil lawsuit. 
and uh, they picked a jury for the civil lawsuit. And, you know, this is a case involving, you know, a black suspect, if you will, African-American who was shot by a white police officer. And the jury pool of 45 people contained only three blacks, which is roughly 6%. Um, ultimately, one African-American was selected for the eight-member jury. There were four white females, two Hispanic females, a white male, and the, and the lone African-American male. Um, the plaintiffs uh, in this lawsuit, the family of Mr. Chamberlain, they're crying foul because according to the statistics in Westchester County, New York, where this jury was impaneled, 11% of the population is African-American. But the pool that they had to select from was only uh, only had three blacks on it, and of course they only wound up with one on his jury. So they're, they're, they're concerned and they're wondering whether or not they're going to be able to get a fair shake from a jury that uh, you know doesn't have uh, African Americans on it, especially because this is a case of a black pol uh, white police officer killing an African American civilian. I think this is another instance that we have so many of them, and actually several of our stories uh, touch on this, but you know, People get shot when they don't listen to police. And police, we've had a rash of police killings in recent months, and police are nervous. And if somebody has their hands in their pockets and isn't listening to police, or somebody pulls out something that, that resembles a gun or even just points at the police, you know, the police have to make a very split-second decision. And it's it's life or death, and it's often the police officer's life or death decision that they're making, and they're going to err on the side of not getting killed by some you know, suspect who's acting erratic. Now, in well, this case, I, I don't know if dr drugs were involved or anything. He, he seemed to be having some kind of psychotic episode. I'm not sure whether that was exacerbated or anything, but it's, it's, it's really of great concern, not just in this story, but to the, our whole country, well, it's interesting because this case, uh, again, takes us to the intersection of two issues that, as you mentioned, we see many times, which is mental illness and then confrontations between the mentally ill and the police. And it just comes to, uh, just comes to mind that these, these interactions seldom, you know, turn out okay. And uh, you wonder whether the police are really trained or equipped or prepared really to deal with suspects who it turns out are dealing with mental illness because this probably, like you say, they have split-second decisions to make concerning their own well-being and safety and maybe the well-being and safety of passers-by. And, uh, and they're not maybe as in tune to the issues of mental illness or psychosis or whatever the particular problem might be that they're actually dealing with, and they arrive without warning or any background concerning what that is. But there's another very interesting legal issue posed by this case. You know, in a criminal trial, uh, there's actually rules that would prevent a jury from being impaneled where the prosecutor had tried to eliminate all of the African-Americans if in the event of, of that particular case, the defendant was African-American. There's a rule uh, that was set forth in a case called Batson versus United States that says that prosecutors have to uh, justify um, challenges or striking jurors on the uh, 
if it looks like it could be racially motivated. There is no such rule in civil trials or in civil court, however, in either the state or the federal systems. And that's one of the things that the plaintiffs in this case are talking about, saying that maybe we should have a rule that says that, hey, even in a civil case, we should make sure that jurors aren't excluded because of race only in the hopes that, you know, a, a, different, uh, a different racial makeup will provide a, an outcome that's more favorable to one side or the other. Absolutely. And, and I think as officers of the court, lawyers, prosecutors, um, they are all expected to make jury decisions not based on race, but on uh, other factors of, of whether the juror can be expected to be fair and impartial. Um, and, you know, this isn't all that unusual. You, you're talking about a county that has 11% of its population uh, that is African-American. And there were 45 members of the jury pool. 11% of that would be five people, actually just under five people. And they had three. Um, certainly, that certainly falls within a, a, a standard deviation. It's not too difficult. And of those three, they came up with one. Uh, that's 33% of the, of the African-American candidates in the jury pool. Uh, when only eight of the 45 candidates were elected. So again, from a math standpoint, there's nothing there that points to anything nefarious or any kind of uh, racial discrimination. Well, you know, I think I think the rule in Batson and the whole idea, you know, came out of, you know, a different era, really, yeah. in uh, criminal prosecutions where white prosecutors would, would just as a matter of course strike african-american jurors if the defendant was african-american and that's where the rule in batson came from i think what the plaintiffs in this case are are challenging is well out of three how can we wound up with only one but you make a good point which is that from a statistical standpoint it doesn't seem as though race was a major motivating factor in the selection of this particular jury but rather it was just the demographics of the surrounding community from which the jury pool was selected yeah, and it seems all too often that people play the race card. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, obviously, the judge and, and has decided that the jury uh, is adequate to provide a fair and impartial decision. So let's move on to Mark Leonardo's story. Uh, this is a really interesting case. The Rolling Stone magazine was sued over an article that it published about a an alleged rape that happened at a, a university, the University of Virginia, in a fraternity house. And um, interestingly, one of the administrators at the school was vilified in this article uh, and accused of of encouraging the alleged victim to not go to the police. And she was devastated by that article, and she sued for uh, damages when they found out that the alleged victim's story was greatly discredited. Uh, Mark, tell us, tell us what's going on with this. Right. This, this case centers on an article written by Sabrina Erdely, and she was a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. And back in November 2014, Ms. Erdely wrote an article entitled A Rape on Campus, where a woman who was only identified by the name of Jackie claimed that she had been beaten and raped by seven men at the Phi Kappa Psi fraternity at the University of Virginia. Now, the plaintiff, as you mentioned, was uh, a school administrator at the university. Her name was Nicole Baramo, 
I'm saying her name correctly. And she was the associate dean there at the university, and she ultimately lost her title there as a result of this article. Um, in the story, she was falsely portrayed as, as, a call, as callous and insensitive to the plight of the alleged victim, and she became the chief villain in this story, partly because she was described as discouraging Jackie from going to the police. So when the article came out, she lost her title, and she was no longer able to counsel students on sexual violence matters. And then she received hundreds of hateful messages. She became depressed and lost her self-confidence. So the argument made by her attorneys was that the reporter approached her story with a preconceived narrative and ignored contrary evidence. And when she was questioned later on, it turns out she didn't even talk to any of the frat members. She didn't identify any of the names. And uh, But Rolling Stone said that they fully trusted the version of events from Jackie until after the article was published. So this was a defamation case. And, you know, many people hear the words libel, slander, and defamation, but they all have certain meanings in the law. So just to educate those listeners who don't know those three terms, what they really mean, uh, defamation is the umbrella category, meaning that someone was defamed by someone else's words. If the words are spoken, then it's called slander. And when it's written, it's called libel. And in the uh, defamation arena, there are different rules depending on who the defamed person is. So what's interesting in this case is that the Virginia court ruled that Ms. Aramo, the school administrator, was a public figure. I so thought that was very interesting. Why, why, why is she a public figure? She's an administrator inside of a school. Well, you know, typically, you're, you're right. We envision public figures being like politicians like, you know, Trump or Hillary or celebrities of some sort. But it's actually often interpreted to be much broader. Um, you know, I actually had, I had a case years ago where the, it was a professor at USC, and he was held to be a public figure. Um, yeah, I find so that interesting because, because the, whole, the, whole, the whole public theory behind that, the policy theory behind it, is that a public figure can defend himself or herself because they have access to the media and they can call a press conference and people are interested in what they have to say. I just don't see how a public school you know, administrator, a university administrator, uh, or a professor, most professors, um, they're not, you know, what, how do they call a news conference? Who's going to listen to them? I find that very troubling that they that the court ruled that she was a, a public figure there. Well, the, the the rule isn't necessarily though that they have to voluntarily thrust themselves into the public eye. I mean, many times people are deemed public figures in connection with defamation or libel lawsuits against their own will or because they're drawn into the public eye as because of some newsworthy controversy that they have a relationship with, even that, even if that relationship is only tangential or only somewhat tenuous. And so sometimes people get caught up in these news stories and they say, well, I'm not a public figure and I never wanted to be in the public eye, but they're there anyway. And therefore, the standards that apply to public figures, which are quite high, as Mark just told us, um, you know, would apply. Right. Actually, when you when you become a public figure or you're labeled as such by the court, you have a much higher standard. You have to prove what's called actual malice. In this case, you know, the reporter you had to prove actual malice against her. And to establish that, what you have to prove is that the person making the statements either knew the statements were false when they made them or that they were made with reckless disregard for the truth. So that's a pretty high standard. 
And I think what the courts do is they want to discourage these kinds of lawsuits. They make it difficult. If you get thrown into that public figure arena, it makes it very hard for the plaintiff to win. But in this case, the jury found that Rolling Stone magazine, the reporter and the publisher, all three of them were liable for defamation. Well, I think part of this that I found very interesting was that as part of the trial, um, they introduced evidence that the Columbia Journalism School, they're completely not biased, but they reviewed the article and and the facts surrounding the investigation of that article, and they were appalled, and they said, quote, it was a story of journalistic failure. Um, right. They say that the article risks spreading the idea that women invent rape allegations, and basically they were they were they came to the conclusion that the author of the article didn't do her job to investigate the facts before writing this 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 very strong article that really criticized uh, the plaintiff in this case, and I think that's a good I think that's a good outcome. I think that um, when the media a lot of times. Obviously, they have a lot of pressure and deadlines, and they want to be the first to break a story and a scoop. Uh, sometimes they will be tempted to relax their standards and relax the requirements that that the job of being a journalist puts upon them to verify things before they publish them uh, in the interest of getting the story out and and beating everybody to the punch. And sometimes, like in this case, it turns out that the facts that they relied on making these stories were were false, and it really hurt somebody. Well, wasn't there something else going on here too, though? I mean, we've heard a lot uh, in the news recently about how, you know, this whole epidemic of rape on college campuses, and have we gone too far as far as the accused have no rights? And some people pushing back saying, well, if we give the accused rights, it's going to like somehow imply and discourage women from coming forward. And wasn't this a case where perhaps journalistic ethics and the usual procedures that would be followed weren't followed in this particular case because of the nature of the allegations and the fear that by digging into them or holding them up or trying to verify them somehow might be interpreted as undermining the ability of victims to come forward in the first place? Well, that's what the that's what the reporter and Rolling Stone were arguing in the beginning, hmm. and so you know there's an interesting twist here um, that when Rolling Stone was found liable uh, on a separate count, when it when it republished the story several weeks later with just a little tiny editor's note, and the note acknowledged doubts about Jackie's account, but they didn't change a single word of the story, and they republished it the exact ver- same verbatim original story. So yeah, the, jur- the, the court- jury added a million dollars to the verdict because of that one. Right, another whole other count. Because each time you publish the wrongful statements or the false statements, it constitutes a separate cause of action for defamation. Um, you know, sometimes a publisher can shield itself if it, if it originally did not know the story was false, and then they issue a retraction or a correction. But that's not what Rolling Stone did. They just had a little editor's comment. And about six months later, when you know when it became a big big deal nationwide, then they retracted the story. But Do it, we know how much money she's going to? They're going to get. She got three yeah, million. Yeah, she sued. Yeah, she sued for seven and a half. They they gave an award of one million dollars against Rolling Stone and the publisher, and two million dollars against the individual reporter. But it turns out, uh, because of her contract with Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone's going to be responsible for the whole three million. Oh, yeah. 
Well, they'll be careful. They'll be. They can take it. They're a big company, and they'll be careful. And the jury definitely sent a message that you gotta comply with the normal journalistic standards, and you need to be careful when you when you put out an article that can really harm somebody. You better make sure that your facts are right, and you've taken. Even if the facts are wrong, you must have taken the steps that is normally required of a journalist to try to verify those. Right, because right, there, so, are a lot of cons- okay. I was gonna say, there are a lot of consequences, Reed, because it wasn't just yeah. this woman who, whose career was ruined, but, they, but the campus did an investigation. They immediately shut down all their fraternities. Right. So all these other frats had nothing to do with this. They all suffered consequences as well. And now Rolling Stone's facing uh, a separate lawsuit for $25 million from the main fraternity where these seven alleged people to right. you know, supposedly rape this woman. Exactly. And it'll be interesting to see how that how that comes out. But um, you know, again, it just it's about journalistic integrity and, and and publishing things that have not been verified. All right, we gotta move on to the next story. Thanks, Mark. Uh the next story is about a an autistic child's wrongful death suit. It's heading to court. Um Robert, tell us about this this case. Okay, so here we have another police shooting case. Um, Ironically or thankfully, maybe this does not involve an allegation of an African-American suspect being shot, but instead a very tragic story about a six-year-old autistic child. He's a passenger in his dad's vehicle. His dad is named Chris Few, and they're pulled over in... uh, in Mansville Parish in Louisiana by some police officers who are attempting to serve a warrant on Mr. Few. Well, he doesn't he doesn't want to pull over. He takes off. They take off after him. Um, they end up cornering him on a dead-end street. And so he makes a U-turn, and his car is coming back towards the police officers. And the police officers, saying that they're in fear of their life, uh, fire 18 rounds um, into the vehicle and uh, tragically, the six-year-old boy is hit in the head and the neck, and uh, and dies of his wounds. Wow, that's that's terrible. So the allegation here in this lawsuit is being filed uh, by the family of the young boy. Uh, the father actually ended up surviving uh, six of the shots that he ended up taking, but the little boy died. Um, and now the allegation is, is that you know these police officers really weren't trained adequately. Apparently, the standards for becoming a licensed officer in Louisiana are pretty low when it comes to uh, the number of hours of classroom or on-the-job training and things of this nature that typical big city police departments impose on their officers. So the allegation here is that these were, these were, uh, these were untrained officers, that they didn't know how to deal with this kind of situation, that they, there was an overuse of deadly force as witnessed by the 18 shots that were fired. Um, and that, you know, this was a tragic death that was really should be laid at the, at the footsteps at the feet of the police because, uh, because of lack of training. And so they've sued the police department and they've sued the city that employs them, saying that, you know, this kind of thing is just completely uncalled for. And they're looking for civil damages as a result of the young boy's death. Well, you've heard a bunch of stories in the news uh, over the years where, uh, police consider if you if you if a person drives a vehicle towards a police officer, they consider that vehicle a deadly weapon, and the driver of the vehicle is assaulting a police officer with a deadly weapon. They often get charged with that. Um, so I can see the theory on a big picture scale, but if the police were in their cars 
and the guy had turned around and he wasn't you know he didn't have enough room to get going 60 miles an hour or something it's not likely that any of the police would have been killed or even seriously injured when the guy drove by even if the guy clipped one of the police cars so i do wonder why they decided to fire 18 shots uh and especially why they decided to fire the shots at the driver of the vehicle as opposed to maybe at the tires or in some other manner to try and disable the car but well, again you know, that goes to their tra- their training and i, I don't are, know about that stuff those are really good questions and you know this this points up a really uh useful uh, a really important use of our civil justice system. As in so many of these stories, a grand jury investigated and determined that there was not grounds to bring a criminal indictment against the officers, right? So now we have the family, and they're seeking answers, and they're seeking justice, so they're going to file a lawsuit in civil court. Um, they're the plaintiffs. They have the burden of proof. And now we're going to get to hear about how the officers are trained or what they're told to do or what the exact circumstances here were. And even if the family is ultimately unsuccessful in seeking money damages, there may be changes in police procedures that could come out, or there might be a greater understanding of of how officers handle traffic stops that could be of interest or benefit to the entire population. So I think a case like this, regardless of how it turns out, really shows how important the civil justice system is in this country for answering questions like this when it's determined that something bad has happened, something where people are demanding answers, demanding justice, but there's not cause for a criminal indictment or criminal charges being brought, but we still have this avenue to get those answers and to find out what happened. Exactly. I mean, it would be very interesting. That's why we have juries, and that's why these cases are not supposed to be tried in the court of public opinion, but instead of the, instead it's the court of law, and though the police will be able to put on their evidence and the plaintiffs will put on theirs, and it'll be very interesting to see what the police training manual or the police policies over there say about situations like this, where you have a a suspect that's driving a vehicle and driving it towards the officers, and maybe uh, the 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 appropriate response to that might vary depending on the type of suspect. If it's a suspect that's that they're coming after because they had a broken tail light or because they didn't pay child support or some other nonviolent issue. That might be different than if it's a suspect that just blew up a building somewhere in a terrorist attack or or murdered people in a shooting spree. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. We have time for one more story, just a couple minutes, and that's going to be Robert's story about Philip White. This is the guy that died in police custody, and apparently his family has filed a $10 million lawsuit against the Vineland Police Department. Tell us about it uh, briefly. Okay, so Philip White, 33-year-old African-American male, died in police custody in 2015. Um, His family now has filed a a lawsuit in federal court uh, uh, alleging that his civil rights have been violated as a result of his treatment at the hands of the local police department. Again, we have a situation where a report is made that somebody is acting erratically. Um, The police come, and uh, the erratically acting person doesn't respond to their commands. Things escalate. They attempted to subdue subdue him, um, and uh, they ultimately do subdue him. And while he's being transported to a hospital, uh, he goes into cardiac arrest and dies. And now his family is contending that his treatment at the hands of the police led directly to his death, and uh, seeking damages as a result. 
But I think the problem with this case, there's two problems. Again, once again, it's another, it's the same story. You've got police come in response to a call. They don't know what's going on, and they find somebody that is acting erratic, and the person doesn't respond to police instructions. If that guy would have put his hands up and listened to what they said, then he may have survived this. However, my understanding of the of the story is that the local coroner did an autopsy on him, and the coroner concluded that he died because of because he had taken PCP. Excellent and point. It's, Excellent. It's point. the PCP we, that killed him. Well, you know that's 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 what their story is. And again, there was no indictments here. They have a problem though, is that they're everybody has a cell phone now, right? And everybody, when they see something like this un- start to unfold, starts taking a video. And some videos have surfaced in this particular case that have given everybody pause and are very disturbing. There's one where it shows Mr. White on the ground with a police officer sitting on top of him, um, just like wailing away, punching him, while another mm-hmm. officer releases a police dog who then runs around the car and starts viciously attacking Mr. White while he's pinned to the ground being being punched by the police officer. And the allegation in this lawsuit and what the family are saying is that irrespective of whether Mr. White was on drugs or acting erratically, that this was a grotesquely excessive use of force, that they had already had him subdued. It would have been a simple matter to cuff him, but instead he was actually assaulted by the police, and then they went so far as to use one of those police dogs to continue the assault and bite him viciously while he's pinned to the ground. So all of those points you just made, Reed, are very good, and it may tr- turn out that the jury adopts all of those. But if you look at this video, you really have to wonder about what the whole story is here. That is very interesting. That that puts a whole different spin on it. And at the very least, if that's the case, I think they have liability for excessive use of force, uh, for whatever damages he suffered. And a big inquiry is going to be whether the the attack by the dog or the the punching uh, when the, when the officer was punching Mr. White, did that have any impact on his actual death? I mean, if he was going to die from PCP because you know PCP is an absolute toxic poison and it could cause a person's heart to stop. And if that's what happened, then I don't think they'd have liability for wrongful death, but that wouldn't allow them to escape liability for uh, all of for assault and for the damage caused by the dog and things like that. But that'll be very interesting to see. I'm glad. That's one good thing. I'm really glad that people have cell phones and they and they they take these videos because then justice is done. And another example here of our civil justice system, you know, being an avenue to air these issues for everybody to, like, understand and see them publicized about what's going on, for a jury to hear actual evidence, and to make a decision accordingly. Just a really important principle of our system of justice. It's absolutely crucial. It's, it's The court of public opinion is where we can have debate, but the court of law is where we resolve these things. And I really hate to see these protests and and people violating the law because they're upset about what happened in some case somewhere in the country. And that is a good segue to Reed's rant. And my rant this week is about the fights and protests that I'm seeing over the election results last night 
and the fights on social media that I participated in and saw on Facebook and other social media leading up to last night's election. Now, we are all Americans. We are Americans first before we're Republican or Democrat or Green or Independent or Libertarian. And we have a duty to support our president, whether it's the candidate that we liked or not. And I very much enjoyed the debate leading up to the election among my friends. I didn't like the vitriol and the hatred spewed about from both candidates about each other, and it was embarrassing on the world stage. But I do like the thoughts that these things provoked and the interesting conversations I had with my friends. And I was disappointed that some of my Facebook friends were took it personally and would yell at other friends and call them personal names and things like that, like racist and bigot and things like that, and a woman hater and stuff. But I, I think we need to focus on the fact that this is the United States and we have a First Amendment right to discuss our opinions, and that's one of the things that makes America great. And we can agree to disagree, and I have lots of friends on, on my Facebook that I agree to disagree with. I still love them, and they're good friends, and I'm happy with them, and I would still support them in any way I can like I would any of my friends, uh, even if I don't agree with their particular political decision. And it's really important to embrace that um, and be grateful that we have the right to do that, because in other parts of the world, if you disagree with the government or the the majority religion, you can get killed. I mean, I, I have seen videos of people executed in the Middle East because a woman wasn't wearing uh, a hijab over her face, or because a woman was accused of burning a Koran. And after she was brutally murdered in the street right in front of the police by a mob, and then her body burned, a investigation determined that she never burned the Quran. We are lucky that we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And right now, there are riots happening in Westwood uh, by a bunch of spoiled brat university students that are upset with the fact that Trump was elected and their candidate, Hillary, was not elected. That I, I really vehemently disagree with because they are – it's not that they're just staging a protest, which I'd have absolutely no problem with. But they're burning things, and they're destroying public property, and they are forgetting that the reason why they are there in, at UCLA, a public school paid, paid for primarily by tax dollars, is because – of the great fortune they have of living in this country and having those opportunities. So that is my rant for the day. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.